Hello, my name is Ryan Stacy, and welcome to my new podcast, Silver Screams. So this is a new show where I'll be taking you on weekly adventures into the stories and defining moments of our favorite horror films. I'm a filmmaker, writer, and cinephile. My entire life, I've had a love affair with movies, and I hope to offer you an excellent house to share these stories with you as we cross the eras and different themes of this incredible genre. Let me tell you a little bit uh, about how this show is going to be different than other horror podcasts. I'll be refraining from an atypical chat show format because I just want to share with you more about the history and stories of these films and less about my critiques and reviews of them. I kind of hope that maybe in a way through this show, I'm going to show you how I, as an independent filmmaker, fall in love with horror movies. On Halloween night, it's when people play tricks on each other. It's all make-believe. I think Richie was just trying to scare you. of Silver Screams, we are going to be discussing probably one of the most popular horror films in history, and I am talking about Halloween. I saw this movie when I was 12, and the terrified effect it left on me lasted, we'll say, well, for more than a year. And it is because of this lasting effect that I would say Halloween is my favorite film of all time. Couldn't even categorize it as my favorite horror film, though, because that movie will be covered in episode three of this season. So what makes Halloween so special? Michael Myers, original murder spree in 1978, did forever shape my life like it actually happened instead of some sort of movie you know, like it was. I had already wanted to make movies by this age, but now I wanted to make movies like Halloween. Movies that had an effect that made you remember them, made you feel them. You know, it was different than other horror flicks that I had seen by this age because Halloween made me use my imagination to fill in its goreless blanks, which was far more terrifying than we'll say something like the lipstick in the Night of the Demons movies, which was the only point of reference I had really had by this age. That was gross at horror, though. It was meant to make you puke. Halloween was cerebral. Its shadowy lighting and moody Dutch angles gave the slow pans an effect that made me want to piss myself, because already as an audience member, I was trained to expect this force of evil to appear anywhere at any moment. Every element of this film got into your head. Even John Carpenter's iconic score haunted my dreams. One year on Trick or Treat, a house was playing the music outside. I do believe this was the year after I saw Halloween. At 13, I ran in fear in front of my friends from this house because of that music. I don't think I've ever experienced a film that has had this effect since. This independent horror film at today's focus 
was released in October of 1978 and was made for only $300,000. With its minimal locations and off-the-rack costuming, Halloween breathed life into horror. At a time when it wasn't taken very seriously, and it only seemed to be in B and C movies, definitely types of work that just were not taken seriously. Halloween, though, would transcend this, and for 21 years, hold the title as the top-grossing independent film in history until 1999's The Blair Witch Project. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's story about Michael Myers, a small-town serial killer wreaking havoc on a sleepy residential street on Halloween, created a horror icon and put actor Jamie Lee Curtis on her trajectory to becoming a true star. The film continues to inspire filmmakers across the board, but it is Halloween's roots as an independent film, the unity of the cast and crew, and the risk everyone took to produce it that truly seems to be what moves future auteurs today. So join me as I talk about Halloween, its production, and its rooted legacy in independent as well as mainstream film. What's an independent film? Being an independent filmmaker, I find myself being posed this question frequently. I, along with my peers, would probably each have our own interpretation of the definition. We are artists, and everything in our eyes is open for interpretation. So I will give you the definition listed on Wikipedia, a source I promise not to quote very often on this show. Begin quote. An independent film, independent movie, indie film, or indie movie, is a feature film or short film that is produced outside the major film studio system, in addition to being produced and distributed by independent entertainment companies. Independent films are sometimes distinguishable by their content and style, and the way in which the filmmaker's personal artistic vision is realized. Usually, but not always, independent films are made with considerably lower budgets than major studio films. End quote. Uh, If that doesn't scream Halloween, I don't know what else could. And within this definition, mentioning the major film studio system, I think we should pause and discuss this just really quickly for context. You know, it's no secret that getting a movie made is extremely hard work. Studios control all decisions made on films. And during the silent film era, this didn't exist. So movies were far less expensive to make and a more diverse world in creating them existed. There were no governing voices. There were all kinds of people making silent films. But that all changed when the age of the talking motion picture came to be. More money was needed to make these movies, so Banks and Wall Street came out to California to play, and truly the rest is history. And when this studio system was established, we quickly saw that we had three tiers of studios. These tiers represented power, money, and quality. The big five were your heaviest hitters. Metro-Golden-Mayer, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO Pictures, which for a time was owned by oil tycoon Howard Hughes, who produced many films that directly influenced John Carpenter, as scenes from Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World would be used during Halloween's harrowing climax. And oddly, not the first time Hawks and Carpenter's names would be mentioned together in this podcast. Next were the little three, 
Universal, Columbia, and United Artists. It was at these echelons that future stars and crew members aspired to work, because these pictures were high class. They had money and production value behind them, and you might become famous the world over if you could just get inside one of these shiny iron gates. Fame and fortune could be yours, said Hollywood's then version of the American dream. So after this, you had Poverty Row, which had recognizable studios like Republic Pictures, Monogram, and Winchester. Working on Poverty Row paid, but their film's legitimacy would come with time and cult status rather than instantaneous acclaim like those generated by powerhouses from the Big Five or the Little Three. To make a film outside of this version of the studio system was for a time illegal. Because barring your funding that you needed to physically make your film, it was hard to get the permits required to shoot. And you wouldn't be able to get your film distributed because you had to have your film pass the standards of the Motion Picture Production Code, which the government had founded in 1934 to govern and police Hollywood's denizens and the content that its studios put out. This board would be dissolved in 1968 and rebranded as the ratings board we know today, the Motion Picture Association of America. But the late 1960s also saw the climax of the civil rights movement with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968. The summer of 1969, colloquially called the Summer of Love, saw LGBT people fighting against police brutality during the Stonewall riots in New York City. In Los Angeles, the Manson families would commit the gruesome Tate-LaBianca murders in August. The emergence of the women's liberation movement really gained its momentum in these years as well. And after 19 years, the United States ended their contested involvement in the Vietnam War in 1973. These events were just a few of many that reshaped society and the political climate of the era. And Hollywood soon realized there was a new viewpoint in town. Audiences wanted realism. A realism that had already started to bubble to the surface in films like Easy Rider and Rosemary's Baby. People were oppressed and pissed off. They liked seeing grifter underdogs succeed, or women fighting until the bitter end to rally against the patriarchy. These films were beyond the traditional content and imagery guidelines set by the production code decades before. They were packed with so much punch and deconstructed glamour and produced for a fraction of the dollars typically pumped into a studio's normal fanfare. Gone were the gilded sheen of stars like Doris Day and Rock Hudson. Audiences wanted to feel the grit and gore, not unlike what their contemporaries were experiencing in Vietnam at the time. Soon, Hollywood was unable to ignore this POV shift, because room had already been made for the influx of independent voices that were about to emerge in this exciting new decade. To begin chronicling Halloween's journey to screen, we should probably talk about the two films that were key in its inception. The first being Bob Clark's 1974 Canadian horror classic, Black Christmas, a holiday slasher film about a killer menacing a sorority house, which received mixed reviews by critics and would go on to earn more than $4 million at the international box office. And the second movie is John Carpenter's iconic indie exploitation flick, 1976's Assault on Precinct 13, 
a film that got him a global audience and put his work in front of the producer, looking to capitalize on Christmas's success. Black Christmas remains in well, my mind the first of its kind. I cannot recall any pieces before quite like it. Sure, the slasher film was nothing new by this point, having already been established by movies like Homicidal, or even Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. The groundbreaking POV shots inspired by the aforementioned titles may have in turn inspired Halloween and our glimpses through its antagonist's eyes. The terrorizing phone calls the young women experience definitely give films like When a Stranger Calls or Scream another thing to harken back to. But what really seemed to make Black Christmas stand out was the holiday setting. It took a day usually filled with love and cheer and made it the most terrifying time of year. Director Bob Clark definitely noticed this too. After the film's release, he mused to John Carpenter that if a sequel were made, it would be centered around Halloween, and veteran producer and film distributor Erwin Yablons would be the one who heard him. John Carpenter had long been working on film by the time he would step on set to direct Halloween. He had graduated from USC Cinema and won an Oscar for Best Live Action Short by age 22. His first motion picture, the comedic space satire Dark Star, was released in 1974. The film would semi-inspire his co-writer Dan Bannon's next project, the script that would become Ridley Scott's masterpiece, Alien. And everything changed for John Carpenter when he would direct Assault on Precinct 13. The film was inspired by his lifelong adoration of the Howard Hawks film Rio Bravo. Both tell gritty stories of hardened groups standing up for their rogue causes and overcoming their adversaries in bloody blazes of glory. However, Hawks' film is probably not as notorious, we'll say, as Carpenter's, due to the latter showcasing a scene where an innocent young girl is literally blasted off her feet by an assassin's silenced pistol who is driving an ice cream truck. To say the production code in Hawks' day would have turned their noses up at this sequence is a huge understatement. Precinct 13 opened to critical acclaim and box office success, thanks in part to the man who gave Carpenter's film its international distribution, a British man by the name of Michael Myers of Miracle Pictures. But this film was the project that gave U.S. distributor Erwin Yablans a director for a project he'd been cooking up. Still wanting to get in on that Black Christmas gravy train, Yablans brought the idea of a horror film set on October 31st to John Carpenter and his now girlfriend and producing partner, Deborah Hill. They'd met on Precinct 13 and began a personal working relationship that uh, would span through the early days of Carpenter's film, The Fog. Soon, Carpenter and Hill set the story of the babysitter murders. Hill would flesh out the dialogue, adding the right flourishes to the story to make the characters jump right off the page and onto the screen. They'd received their backing from Mustafa Akkad of Compass International Pictures. Hesitant at first to finance, Akkad acquiesced when he realized the entire film would cost $300,000, 10000 which would be used to hire John Carpenter for his script, directing, editing, and scoring the movie. Even still, Akkad expressed over the years that he remained on edge over his investment because he did not have much faith in a film that promised to shoot a quality product in 20 days, and that was to be ran by a group of people who maybe looked like a pack of inexperienced hippies. How they would change his mind. But the late 70s wasn't a great place to make movies like this. 
not for that type of budget and with this type of schedule, unless you are a certain kind of cinema, exploitation. Precinct 13 could tow that line if you want to split those hairs. There is violence, lots of guns, cursing, and blood is flying and splattering. But the way John Carpenter does it, the man is just a visual artist, and Precinct 13 just has a gravitas about its execution that traditional exploitation films lack. Really, then, it doesn't tow any genre lines, it transcends them. Something this project would do too. The script became known officially as Halloween, and it was one step closer to becoming cinema legend. Filming on Halloween began in March 1978 in South Pasadena, California. The large streets and big old houses would serve well as the streets of quaint Haddonfield, Illinois, complete with the odd palm tree and shot. They're there, look hard, even Rob Zombie, who shot his remake in the same neighborhood, occasionally caught one. The production's budget would famously use most of it to buy the then-new Steadicam technology they would use to shoot the movie, and to cast stage and silver screen legend Donald Pleasance, who would be the most recognizable name in the film when it released, ahead of teen movie vet PJ Souls, who had appeared in 1976's Carrie. Many of the other cast and crew doubled up on jobs during the production. Friends of Carpenter and Hill provided cater meals. Everyone worked out of a single Winnebago RV as the production's truck. The crispy autumn leaves that we see sailing across the sidewalks and lawns of Haddonfield were the same bags of painted fake leaves used through the entire shoot, which had to be scattered and rebagged for every scene. For some shots with the leaves, a future horror icon happened to be on set who was giving a close friend a hand, burgeoning actor Robert England. Yes, that Robert England. Lead actor Jamie Lee Curtis bought her own wardrobe from her local J.C. Penney's. Some might see this as a slight to an actor, but in the independent film world, often this is the case. Sometimes a script is just so damned good, an actor who is being paid for their time on a production may not mind purchasing their own character's attire. It's actually been in my indie experience that some love this as it helps them find their character. They often deliver their best work this way. Curtis really did find her character through costuming the meek but fierce Laurie Strode. I believed in her. And it wasn't just her performance. I just had this belief that Laurie Strode was this real, soft, determined, but fearless young woman. And I believed in her friends. All of this, I think, really should be a huge thank you to the late Deborah Hill for these realistic moments, because this was just one of her many amazing contributions to cinema. Passing from cancer in 2005, to say Deborah's involvement in the 2018 sequel would have been, I think we all would agree, something to behold. Production designer Tommy Lee Wallace created the Michael Myers mask by infamously altering a William Shatner Captain Kirk mask that he purchased for under $2, which is almost $8 in today's money. We would never find a decent IP-licensed mask for that price. To bring Michael to life, or the shape as he was known in the script, a total of five people donned his outfit or props. Wallace would also co-edit the film with Carpenter. The crew could double up on duties or shirk hiring a costumer. This was slow-budget film, independent cinema. There weren't any union or studio regulations to operate by, and the crew, according to stories told over the years, were beyond happy to work hard. 
They believed in their movie, in John and Deborah. This onset tenacity would pay off more than any money the film lacked to pay anyone. Successfully shot in 20 days, Halloween would be ready for its October release. But the bigger question is, would this ragtag group who made it? Finally, October 25th, Halloween's release date arrived. This terrifying new film was packed solid with effective frights and the perfect tones and piano strikes to orchestrate it. The film opened in Kansas City, Missouri before spreading out over the next few weeks globally. It was a hit, earning over $1 million at the box office in just its first week. And when Halloween would end its original theatrical run, it would take home a global take of $70 million, a comparatively closer haul to its 2018 sequel box office performance, which when adjusting the 78 film for inflation, is over $279 million, and the 2018 sequel grossed over $400 million. This phenomenon is often credited to critic Roger Ebert, who in his sparkling review of Halloween noted it as one of the best films of 1978. Ebert, along with Gene Siskel, really were the say-all to end-all to movie reviewing then, so this review truly sealed the deal on Halloween's legitimacy, because it was never going to be called into question. Yes, Halloween was a horror movie, and for a film like this to perform exceedingly well at the box office was not a new concept either. Before this, we had titles like Carrie, The Exorcist, and Jaws. All three were huge hits with both audiences and critics alike. Jaws has single-handedly created the term summer blockbuster with its record-shattering run in 1975, but all of these future classics were studio-made and based off published books. Halloween was the horrifying brainchild of one dynamic duo outside of the reaches of screen rights and studio influence. Here, I must really worship the performance of Halloween. The movie was made for just over a quarter million, which meant its box office returns were astronomical. But like with all successful films, those fruits weren't for Carpenter or Hill to share in. These monies obviously went to the producers, however their labors were rewarded in other ways. Like Curtis and other talents from Halloween, this was just the beginning for them. And in these films, the indie movie spirit that made their new theatrical sensation special would continue to live on. One thing that makes an independent film pop is the voices of the characters, their experiences, you know, which are usually inspired by or taken some way from the filmmakers' lives. I've always observed that a part of John Carpenter obviously exists in each of his characters he created for actor Kurt Russell. Best example to me is Snake Plissken, who has that same sort of renegade swagger that Carpenter exudes in his filmed interviews I have seen. These feathered hair commanders of their trades, filmmaker and mercenary respectively, chain-smoked and wore tight pants that let you know these dudes really had big balls. Defying normal hero archetypes, Pliskin was one of many anti-heroes created by Carpenter, and in turn these unique souls would inspire future artists to carry the same cojones that John Carpenter did with his films. But it would be Halloween that was that touchstone film, and a long line of work serving as muses for indie filmmakers today. It's myself included. I could talk at length about Jamie Lee Curtis's meteoric career. I say meteoric because her career took off after she stopped accepting horror films with Halloween 2. Wait, did I just say that Jamie Lee Curtis's career wasn't legitimized until her post-horror efforts? Well, again, this is not a secret. Jamie Lee Curtis could have kept working in these movies forever. 
Sure, her movies did okay from a box office standpoint. Honestly, it didn't take much to make a horror film, especially after Halloween made it look so easy to do so much when you had so little to do it with. By this time, horror flicks were being churned out by studios at lightning speeds, which meant they typically went into a quick theatrical run first, but then were banished to the booming home video market of the 1980s. Roger Ebert had praised Jamie Lee Curtis and his review for Halloween, but gave her 1980 effort Terror Train one star out of four, and he doesn't even mention her name once. But she would have only been that woman, who usually played the same character, who we now know as the final girl. Nothing she performed in would completely mirror her respectable success of Halloween, even in 1981's Halloween 2. I know her character is attempting to recover from the night's events at a hospital, but Curtis's confusion and struggle with lucidly processing her surroundings is all too convincing. As if even though she's been directed as what to do in front of Rick Rosenthal's camera, the director of Halloween 2, Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't even know why she's there. Though, by all accounts, I can find it would seem she did enjoy making this sequel in more than 2002's globally reviled Halloween Resurrection. So Curtis left the genre, and from there she completely revamped herself throughout the 1980s. We got a new Jamie Lee Curtis in daring and diverse roles, all studio films. Sometimes along the way, you could see glimpses of Laurie Strode in her work. I think it's most prominent in her turn as Shelley, the beautician-turned-makeup artist for the deceased, and My Girl, co-starring opposite Dan Aykroyd. Shelley was smart, a bit fiery, and a sensible woman of the 70s. Curtis wielded the same cool, collected ability to comfort and entertain even the most difficult children like Veda, My Girl Center character, or her charges in Halloween, Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace. I have met Jamie Lee Curtis and watched her interact with her fans. She's like this in person, too. She's also a go-getter, like her on-screen counterparts. Ever-efficient, always in motion, ever-evolving. She seems always on her toes, always prepared. Whether this is merely quirks of her personality, or just an ethic instilled in her on Halloween's set, there is no denying that this charm is what has carried her across decades of some of our most favorite motion pictures. Halloween, as of 2018, is a billion-dollar franchise. In Indie Movie No More, Halloween's ownership has changed hands over the years with characters belonging to one company and the screen and distribution rights belonging to others. There is endless merchandise, and additions of the movies and its sequels, plus the remake and its sequels, annual screenings, and even conventions centered around it. The movie itself is a staple of the spooky movie season, and for most of Halloween's fans, that season is year-round. Every year, there are more films that indie and studio level alike could be described as derivative. Often lines of homage are blurred, and it can be very easy to become a carbon copy. This film was successful because it was created in a time when it didn't have to try hard to be special because it didn't have anything to compare itself to. Its originality and simplicity are just, in my opinion, too hard to imitate. I hope this episode helps shed some light on and into the independent film realm and some of the varied reasons why we so often revisit that fateful fall night in 1978. Thank you for your time. I know it's valuable, and I appreciate you spending it with me. Please come back for episode 2 of Silver Screams when I cover a different horror movie, Carrie, a film that I actually mentioned a couple of times in this episode. 
Its story is incredibly important to me, and I can't wait to talk with you about its making and legacy, and Carrie's legitimate status as a horror movie. Thanks in part to the Oscar nominations that its lead stars would receive, and lose out on. So until then... <laughs>